This Talking Flutes podcast is kindly sponsored by Trevor James Flutes, making life sound beautiful. You can show them some flute love by following them on Instagram at TJ Flutes, Trevor James Flutes on Facebook and at trevorjamesflutes.com. I'm Claire Southworth and this is Talking Flutes. Now, Halloween is just around the corner and I thought I'd share some flute horror stories with you and helping me in this task is none other than Jean-Paul. Hello, Jean-Paul. And a very good morning to you, Claire. Horror stories. I love horror stories. Well, actually, I don't love horror stories, but um, I'm not really a horror lover, but the thought of horror stories, is, is this a cringe fest or is it a laugh fest? It's both. I mean, I'm sure like me, you've had a lot of funny or uncomfortable experiences. Oh, yeah. And when I first started to think about it, I seem to remember so many scary stories, but they revolve around certain things, which is sort of lost or damaged flutes and travel horrors. Oh, cracky. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's I'll, quite a few. I'll get my thinking cap on whilst you... you this is an unusual podcast, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, but, but it's the right time of year. Let me kick this podcast off with, with one of my memories. It, it's from a long time ago. Um, I'm not quite sure how long ago, but it would be at least, oh, heck, 25 years ago, maybe 24 years ago. Um, I was giving a concert in the Barbican Centre um, for the Flutewise Society. You know, Flutewise had one of these huge Barbican experiences with thousands of, of young flute players coming. I was, I was doing a, a concert, and so we went as a family because it was me and Rolf, husband Rolf, two children, Joe, who was just over four, and Eleanor, just a few months old. Now, do you remember all the sort of the paraphernalia you had to take with you mm -hmm. when the kids were little, when you have small children? So there's, there's buggies, uh, bags, food, drink, and then I had to have all my concert gear, gig bag, flutes, music. So it's all a bit of a nightmare trying to remember everything and trying to concentrate on doing concerts. Got there, concert went well. We made our way back to the car park and I was trying to load the children into the car with the buggy and everything. And, and Rolf said, give me a gig bag, which had my clothes in and my flute, and I'll put it in the boot. Fine, everything packed up. We set off out of London to go home, which was about an hour away. 30 minutes into the journey, I was sort of, um, had a sort of a strange feeling. I said, Rolf, you did put my bag in the car, didn't you? Yes, he says, very confidently. Um, I still had a strange feeling. I said, just stop the car with you and just check. And, and guess what? No bag. This had my um, incredible Almeida flute and a Louis Lott head joint both irreplaceable. After a complete meltdown, and it was a very noisy meltdown, we turned the car around uh, to go back. And uh, I was trying to think who I could contact because the Barbican Centre has about five levels of car park. So we're about three levels down. But I remember then I'd been chatting to Andy Thompson and I just rang and I said, Andy, my flute's on the floor of the car park and I'm not with it. And he said, 
I'm on my way. That's all he said. And then 10 very long minutes after that, he rang to say that he had it. The bag was still lying. Whoa. It was a gray bag lying on the gray concrete floor. So it was still there. I mean, I can't believe how lucky, how lucky we were. But, you know, you feel physically sick at the thought of losing your flute, physically sick. But anyway, all of these stories have happy endings, luckily. So that was that was a happy ending. Okay, well, there's two things come to mind. Firstly, that Barbican event, and secondly, losing flutes. Losing flutes, I learnt the hard way. I had two flutes, a Powell and a Brenham, silver. And we are probably talking 30 years ago now, and my mind has always been left, right, up. It's been, it's been a monkey mind. It's been swinging around carefree for years. And I always found it really hard to focus. And one day I was going up for a lesson with the dear old James Dow, who sadly died very young. And I had both flutes with me, but also I had a bag. So I was staying overnight for a lad's weekend. Uh, the flutes were separate and the, the overnight bag I put up on the, the over over the top near the seats of the train and happily journeyed in because there was no such thing as iPods or stuff in those days. So I was reading a book, I must have imagined. Anyway, I was miles away and the train was packed because it was first thing in the morning. And we arrived in Charing Cross. I got up, took my bag off and happily went off to Jim's. And it was only when I arrived at Jim's I realised I was missing two very important things my flutes oh, no. yeah now why did i have two flutes because i was testing two flutes i my own one was a powell and i was testing a brannan with regards to probably buying it i went back flew back in a panic to Charing cross that was from just down the road from royal academy where jim used to live and there was no sign the crane had gone the flutes were never seen again Never seen again. Well, that doesn't have a happy ending. There is no happy ending whatsoever to that. Oh. Apart from, I have never, ever, I mean, it's the most expensive mistake I've ever made. But I learned a big, big lesson there, which was being present, put my flutes in my bag rather than separate from the bag. Always stick it in the bag. So when I take the bag, it doesn't matter. And... I don't think my mother and father ever forgave me for the the extra applied to the mortgage to cover the cost of those two flutes. Oh, John Paul, that's awful. That's a that's a true horror story. Yeah, and, and it's Good. making me feel a bit sweaty whilst I'm thinking about it now. <laughs> <laughs> now can I go back to your um the, the flute wise yeah. event at the barbecue? Yeah. Is that somebody had this mad idea idea of five guys doing something and the I was one of the five guys, and it was it was having a flute quintet. Uh, I remember. Yeah, a promotional quintet, and we'd been on breakfast TV a few days before to promote this flute wise event, and obviously Jimmy's uh, Sir James Galway's presence at the event, and we turned up on the Saturday, and we were due to play. I don't know what time it was, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, whatever, in front of everybody. And obviously quite a lot of people hadn't seen what was coming or hadn't seen the breakfast TV because it's quite a trendy thing in those days. And there was lots of flute teachers there that were there for flute-related matters. And I remember Jonathan Snowden was doing a class and he was doing Sweet Antique. 
And he was breaking it down. So he was playing it and then breaking it down. And I remember standing at the back in my dress for this quintet, or not no dress as it was, but stood right at the back. And Jonathan was, and I could, he was giving guidance on breathing, where, where the best place to, and I see people writing notes. Anyway, there was a gap, I found it really, really interesting. And at that moment, I'd forgotten that I actually had no clothes on, apart from a white bow tie, some shorts and some boots, and that I'd greased my body up because the quintet was called the Chippen Flutes, a take, take on the Chippendales. So I, yeah. I f- totally forgot because it was really warm in there. So I actually went down and sat in between two ladies that were writing. And as I sort of go, went past, I can imagine that I could hear this murmur going on behind me. I sat down and this lady turned to me and said, I'm sorry. I think you're at the wrong event. (laughs) (laughs) What a sight. At least it was just the one of you and not all five of you. Yeah, that would have been interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you just reminded me of another story that I hadn't remembered until you started talking about your lost flutes. And this is not, it wasn't my story, but it, it, it applied to one of my flutes. And the story is about Michael Cox, the way very wonderful Michael Cox of, of Principal Flute of, of London fame. And he played an open G-sharp Lot flute. And we were in prom season. And he had a problem with his flute. And the only other person who played an open G-sharp Lot flute at that time was me. So he got in touch and said, is there any possibility I could borrow your flute. Uh, it was a big, I think it was La Primidi on the, on the programme. And he just wanted a flute that he felt comfortable with, that was the, the same sort of style. So I said, yes, of course you can borrow, borrow my flute. So he borrowed my flute. What happened, I didn't know any of this until after the, after the concert, was that, now what did, what did he do? He was either, oh no, it, that was right. He, it wasn't a problem with his flute. His flute had got lost because he'd given it to a repairer who was on a bus and forgot the bag. Oh, and dear. so the flute was lost. That's right. And so Michael got my flute. Meanwhile, the, the flute was, was, it was eventually recovered on the day of the concert because the bus conductor found the bag and put it in lost property and then it was found. So all ended up well. But the BBC wanted to make a sort of a, a sort of a big story about it. So they had this big story with Michael saying, you know, your flute was lost, but we have it here. And they handed it to him. But actually, it was my flute they were handing to him because he didn't actually have his own flute yet. It was still in the lost property, but they knew it was it was there. So but he must have he must have been so worried that he would never see his flute again. Yeah, I mean, very different because it's the great Michael Cox and, you know, anyone that's a professional player, to lose your instrument is it's akin to bereavement because it you is. are at one. You spend more time with that instrument than you do with your husband, your partner, whoever. It is. I mean, with me, I was still a student, so it was just stupidity. But to look for, for Michael, ah, oh, how dreadful. So how about a different type of story? Go on then. Uh, again, this is, it makes me feel quite ill when I think about it. Do you remember Hostess Trolleys? <laughs> I can remember my mother having one and bringing Christmas dinner in on a, on a exactly, trolley. Exactly. My mother had, well, my parents had, the, had it one too, <laughs> right? And it's, a, it's a heated trolley 
that you can keep your food in, so you keep your food warm. Yeah. I don't know who thought of the idea, but it, anyway, it was very popular in the 80s, you know, so, and um, all the 70s, 70s, 80s. So, but this was in the 80s, this story. Um, we rarely used the one we had at home. It's like you, it's maybe Christmas, Christmas lunch. So I used it as a hiding place. For my fruits. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Yeah, oh dear. So I did take my flute out because I needed my flute, but I had no idea that my mum would use the trolley, which she did. Oh. Uh, some days later, I needed my piccolo, wooden piccolo, uh, and sort of the realization struck, struck me oh my God, it's in the trolley. <laughs> and I. <laughs> I gingerly took, took, took it out, I opened the case, and it was white. All the wood was white. It was completely dried out. Total panic set in. So I rubbed, I rubbed the wood all over with a sort of a moisturiser or Vaseline, something that I had. And it started to look a little bit more normal, I think. So I was thinking, oh, you know, maybe I rescued it. And then I played it. And I just put my finger on the D sharp key, so right hand little finger, and it fell off with a, <laughs> complete with a chunk of wood. <laughs> but you know, I glued it back on. Everything else was fine. <laughs> it was absolutely fine. So <laughs> it's it survived. Hostess trolley. God, dear, dear, dear. Um, okay, I'm going to throw another one. There's a, a wonderful flute teacher. He was great in the mornings, but in the afternoon he'd been on the pop. Um, George Crozier, who was a London freelance flute player, orchestral player. And I was studying with him and I was think he was saying that I needed to expand my horizons and perhaps learn to play the evil twig, the piccolo. And he lent me his, which was quite an old hammock. And I took it home and I started practicing and I was fine. It was good. But at the time, my mum had purchased a brand new dog. Uh, my mum still is a, uh, a show judge, a dog show judge, but in the toy breed. But she had, in those days, we were into boxers. So she had purchased a new dog called Gus. And Gus was a mischievous little thing and would bite anything. Now, I... When I came home, I put my rucksack on the side and put the piccolo and my flute on the side and went out because I was young and that's what guys did. Or oh, probably still do, actually. And I came home to the news that Gus had taken the piccolo case and had chewed, it was leather bound on the outside, and had chewed it up. And it was complete mess. I mean, he couldn't actually get through that, the wooden lid. But the leather bound, no, the leather bounding on the outside was was hanging off. Anyway, I was I, oh, I was crestfalling. I th I thought, oh my word. So what I did is I arranged to have an afternoon meeting with uh, afternoon lesson with George because yeah. I'd known he'd probably been down the pub. And I went back and said, I've got a slight problem, George. And I showed him the the piccolo case, and the leather was like peeling off in numerous places, and there was obvious teeth marks. And he just turned around and said to me, well, do you know, that gives me a lot of street cred now. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was lucky. <laughs> I think it's more that I'd um, taken it in the afternoon than the uh, the morning. 
Anyway, I, the, 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 the story to that is I, I visited Awfulit's bus and they arranged me to get a new case and we managed to fit it in. So it was fine, but the horror at seeing what Gus had done to this uh, piccolo case. <laughs> there was a, there was a, a student at the, the Royal Northern with me who was lent a, a Louis Lot head joint and uh, she used to ride a bicycle a lot and she was riding a bicycle through Manchester and the bag fell off and a bus went over it. Oh. Uh, and that Louis Lot head joint was, was squashed. Oh. It was, I think it was recovered. I think they bashed it out. But um, I had a very unnerving experience when I was a student giving a private lesson to a, a young student. And the student arrived with the foot joint stuck on the flute. Oh, yeah. Which yeah. quite often happened, yeah. you know, been putting it on, you know, at an angle and, and it got stuck. So I said, well, look, I'll try and sort it out. But we, we had the lesson because she arrived just at the time of the lesson. You know. At the end, I tried to remove the foot joint. But I actually only succeeded in actually taking all the keys off the foot joint. <laughs> <laughs> it just, I mean, I wasn't trying to touch the keys. It was just, you know, grabbing hold and just giving a little sight to her. Suddenly they just all fell off. And I remember having to go outside and explain to her mother in the car that there'd been a slight malfunction and, and pointed to the nearest repairer. But, <laughs> oh, yes, it was, that was a, a worrying one. I, I had a, also another slightly similar major technical fail when I was, I was traveling to Portugal for a rehearsal and evening concerto performance. So that's always dicey. A, you've got to rely on the plane being on time, and then it was going straight from the airport, airport in Portugal to the rehearsal, rehearse, quick, calm down, eat, change, concert. So I was at Heathrow with all my bags on a trolley, and someone came rushing past and knocked all the bags off. I thought, no, I didn't think anything more of that. But I arrived at the rehearsal in Portugal, got my flute out, and I couldn't get the foot joint on. So... It had, the bag had fallen so heavily, it had dented the end of the, the main body of the flute. And so the, flute, the foot joint just wouldn't, wouldn't go on. So, you know, I'm thinking, I'm just about to go on to do a rehearsal and a concert tonight, and I, I haven't got a flute. And I'm open, to, I play open G sharp, so it wasn't a case of getting another flute. So I had to sort of really sort of force the metal, to bend the metal and force the foot joint on at a, a very odd angle. And it stayed there until I got home. Wow, you were lucky. And it was all out of, I mean, it had been rocked terribly so that the, 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 all the mechanism was slightly, was slightly off, but I could, I could still play, but I knew it wasn't quite right. Have you ever turned up at a gig and opened your case and you've had a head joint missing? No. Ah. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know what it's like when you're searching for that elusive head joint. You know that thing that you look for all your life, and you fall in love, and then you fall in love again, and then, you know, I suppose all flute players are, in a, in a way, we're all sort of, you know, we're searching for that holy grail. And I once turned up at a concert in Manchester, bearing when I was living in London, and I opened the case, and there was no head joint. Oops. I've been at home testing flutes and head joints and took my flute to the concert without a head joint in there. Luckily, a wonderful man called Derek Lennox, who is my pal in Manchester, he saved the day. He happened to be at home when I rang 
Because in those days, Claire, you know, people, people forget that we just had telephone boxes and telephones at home. Yeah, <laughs> there, was, no there was no, no. mobiles. So not only did I panic, it was a concert at, uh, what's the major, the, the major venue in Manchester where the Halle play. Um, I've forgotten what it's called, but... Um, They've moved from there now. Bridgewater. A, uh, I, it was Bridgewater I, I played. Yep. Yeah, and I remember turning up and I always turned up early, not because I wanted to go to the pub that next door where all the brass players go. No, 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 no. I was just, I just went there for research. So I put my stuff on the seat and just as you do, open the case and it wasn't there. So I had time and the great bearded man in the sky was obviously looking down on me favourably because Derek was at home and he, he came over because there was no tram there. He just came over and lent me his flute. Again, a, a lucky break for me. And yeah. on, on lucky breaks, Claire, I've got something for you to listen to. Which, uh-huh. which I, I mean, it's quite a well-known thing. It's a brass band up north, like, you know. And they are playing a beautiful, a beautiful slow piece. And somebody sneezes in the audience. So I'm just going to move my headphone and play this to you. I'm sure we've all had experiences of that. Now, for me, I'm a giggler. So if I'd been in that brass band, I would not have been able to stop. And giggling has got me in trouble in the past. I can't keep a straight face. And Uh you know in an orchestra, Claire, you've got the brass players behind you, and they are the worst for winding you up. If they know there's a weakness, they get you. Yes. Have you ever had any experiences where you've been playing in an orchestra and you're playing a really beautiful, beautiful piece, and then a noise happens in, in the auditorium? Yes. Does it make you laugh, or can you just ignore it? No, no, I get the giggles. Oh, you get the giggles as well. Okay, that's yeah. fine. How about, I was thinking back, and it's, it does go back a long time to the youth orchestra days, playing Mars uh, by Holtz, and the brass part at the end, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and then a, a rogue trombone player comes in, doesn't, <laughs> doesn't count the rests enough. <laughs> um, and on that, I have as you would probably imagine, another recording, if I can find it, my, my lady. And this is of a very famous Bolero trombone solo, which we all yeah. know, don't we? Yeah. And again, I found it on YouTube because bloopers are quite easy to find, horror stories. Here we go. Again. probably can't hear that but it it makes me cry every time I hear it it makes me cry every time I hear it it's just the trombone player having a seriously bad day at the office there I think yes (laughs) (laughs) it's funny when you start talking about these stories they just seem to go on and on and on there are so many there are have you ever had a wardrobe malfunction oh yes actually I I shouldn't be asking that the lady but um yeah 
Yeah, I had I had this, this very quick story. I remember I had um, I had a concerto when I was a student at college. I had a few, few well, this was one of my first ones. So I thought, this deserves a new dress. So I went and bought a new dress, but I hadn't practiced in the new dress. So it came to the point where I had to walk on stage for this concerto. And the, the skirt, the long, long dress, the skirt part was so tight, I couldn't move my legs. So I had to shuffle a few inches at a time. <laughs> I actually tried that. <laughs> it looked absolutely ridiculous. Me shuffling on the stage and not be able to move my bottom half. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got a great story from Ian Anderson here, which is uh, yep. Ian Anderson of Jethro Toll fame, of Shea Stadium, the wonderful, huge, great Shea Stadium, uh, New York in 1976. And it goes as follows. I'm going to read this. I stood with the rest of the band at the top of the ramp leading down to the field of Shea Stadium. As with the Beatles' Shea show ten years earlier, this was not to be an artistic success, to say the least. Commercial jets on final approach to the adjacent LaGuardia airport drowned out the sound, when it wasn't being drowned out by the firecrackers, whistles, hoots and hollers of the crowd. In those final moments before walking onto the field, I was suddenly drenched with warm, sticky liquid from high above where some of the rowdy 50,000-strong audience looked down onto the player's access ramp. Only I, as I began the inaudible first verse of Thick as a Brick on acoustic guitar, did I realise with resigned horror that the liquid, I assumed to be beer, was not, in fact, beer at all. It was urine. The, un <laughs> the unmistakable pong wafting from my then ample head of damp hair and freshly laundered stage clothing would remain for the duration of the show an unholy <laughs> baptism from above and he goes on to say i could have picked the gig at denver's red Sox amphitheater in 1971 when riots and police tear gas threatened to stop the show or being hit hard in the larynx by a baseball at philadelphia spectrum arena or anointment by the freshly plucked but seriously used I can't use that one. <laughs> That's quite rude. Or the 10-inch spike <laughs> impaled in the stage next to me at soundcheck when fans climbed onto the roof gantry over the stage. Or the live rounds of automatic pistol ammunition thrown onto the stage during every show. But no, the bucket of urine, delivered with loving precision, wins out every time. You just have to uh, laugh. Yeah, uh, luckily... We're, we we move in slightly different circles, <laughs> um, rather than the sort of you know the sort of into the into, into popular music. There, obviously, there's a different sort of clientele in the in the audience. There is a different clientele, but it just goes that flute players of all genres have hassle. Um, you know, you know my penchant for red socks. In fact, I've yes. only ever worn red socks since I was eighteen. But when you go on stage, you have to wear you, you're not you, you should wear dark socks. So that yeah. there's nothing taken. Well, there's obviously one day when I remember doing a concert at the Festival Hall and I had forgotten my red, my black socks. And it was a Sunday. And in those days, shops weren't open on Sundays. So I played with red socks. And have you ever tried playing a concert with your legs tucked as far under the chair as possible? So the conductor... Because flutes, they, you seem to think that, or we seem to think that the conductor or the audience can't necessarily see the flute legs. 
But dep- and the festival yeah. hall stage is quite wide, isn't it? And it depends how it's set up. And I was very aware that they could see my feet. So I sat right at the very front with my legs tucked backwards for virtually the duration of the, <laughs> the concert. Well, you'd have been very visible because you're on that first, first bit of staging yes. after the strings. Again, I learned a lesson there. It's one of my checklists, or it was one of my checklists. Black socks. <laughs> Where was that? Was that in the, the Festival Hall? Yes, that was Festival Hall, yes. Yeah, I, I was playing as a freelance player with the London Symphony Orchestra in the Barbican Hall. And um, I, was, I was backstage, and the, I wasn't playing in the first piece. And the first piece wasn't very long. So I was backstage, but not playing in the first piece. And I was happily chatting away to Jack Brimer. Remember oh, the wonderful blimey, that phenomenal clarinetist, Jack yeah. Absolutely fascinating man. And had so many stories. And I, and I suddenly thought, oh, I wonder if the first piece is finished. So I said to Jack, um, shouldn't we be on by now? And, and he said to me, I'm not in the first two pieces. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Major panic. I ran to the stage door and I just got on ahead of the conductor coming on because everyone else was sitting on the stage. Yeah. So I went and sat down and Peter Lloyd went, oh, I'm glad to see you here, Claire. Glad you could make it. <laughs> Has it, ever, um, it must have happened where somebody, part of the orchestra, have forgotten to come on because some of the orchestra disappear when they're not playing, don't they? It must have happened where yeah. an important player had actually forgotten to come on. The conductor started, started conducting and that player wasn't there. Well, I think it's fine if you're a string player, of course. It's just when when you're in the wind, it's sort of terribly obvious. <laughs> and in those days, there were very few women. I think it was one or two women in the strings. Um, and so I'm walking on the stage, the only person in a dress. And it was, I felt terribly visible. <laughs> so, now, now, obviously, when you're doing proper orchestral concerts, um, you're in the zone, so there's you don't you don't mess around. But it was more on these sort of classical, these classical pop evenings or these light concerts where, you know, you have guest songs. I remember doing something with Hinge and Bracket. Do you remember those all year, those years ago? I do. Goodness me. That Damien, takes me. Yeah, David, Damien Vadney, Hinge and I've got, well, I forgot what the Lady Bracket or whatever she was called, Hinge and Bracket. And they had this piece called um, The Cat Song, where they'd meow, meow, meow. And they'd be playing away, one would be playing on the piano. And there was a small salon orchestra that we, we went around the country sort of touring with them for a while. And one of them knew exactly how to get me because they'd be meowing. And they're obviously, they're guys pretending to be old women, posh old ladies. And he, on the first night, he was singing around and he went, bah, like this in totally the wrong place and it had me I started giggling and he then every show put that in and there is something about playing in a very non uh, serious venue where your guard comes down and I couldn't play I was crying and I really really couldn't play and the second flute had to take over my part but that, as, as they said afterwards, that almost formed part of their act because they knew I would start. And however many times they did it, it was never funny because he wouldn't put it in the same place. So I would think, oh, OK, I'm fine here. So I was a bit worried because I, I didn't want to laugh. And he would just put it in this weird thing. And it became part of their stage show that they get the flute player to laugh. 
Yeah, it's, it's clever that when they can sort of change their act to um, to surprise you and get a reaction. Yes, and to bring in the, the, the small salon orchestra at the back that they used. And yeah, very, very clever. But when you're in the zone, unless you've had a nightmare leading up to it, then very f the only really bloopers that can happen is something that's very unfortunate. Uh, in my case, uh, misfortune followed me around quite a lot. <laughs> oh. Now, what else can we can we think of? I mean, every time you start chatting, you remind me of of another sort of experience. I mean, you know, I think there nothing ever goes smoothly, does it? Um, <laughs> no. There was another memory. I was I was playing second flute in the English Chamber Orchestra with William Bennett, and I just happened to mention to Wib that I had I thought I had a problem with my left hand keys. I thought that there must be something, something wasn't quite right. Um, anyway, the red light's on, and we're recording. And the flutes had about 40 bars rest. And he suddenly, Whip suddenly took my flute off me, and got his screwdriver. As he does, yes. <laughs> I decided to take my flute apart. This is with the red light on, we're recording in the middle of the symphony. And um, he just gave me his flute. Um, and... Um, we got the bars were going by and we're getting closer and closer and I was getting more and more panicked there's one bar to go and he just got it all back together again past my flute and suddenly we're on with the solos with the, with the little little duet oh just in the nick of time do you know that doesn't surprise me at all with Wib I mean he likes messing around with flutes anyway doesn't he but um yeah he has very fixed ideas on how they should be but yeah but he fixed it in, in a very short space of time um, but but to do it in that time, uh, and I was thinking, oh, heck, well, we, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Anyway, it was all fine. Do you remember the first time you ever played with that red light came on live? Do you remember ever? As in live radio rather than live recording on a, yep, an yep. album. Uh-huh. Uh, the first time it ever happened to me, it was Friday night is music night, Radio 2. Do you remember that? Well, yeah, yeah, I played at the BBC Concert Orchestra. I've done that concert. Well, in a previous life, when I was playing in a, a certain group, we were invited along to do some set pieces in between the orchestra pieces. And I was playing a solo in this group, which is fine, uh, until the, before we went on, the trombone player of the BBC Concert Orchestra just said to me, oh, it was, I think it was Northern. You know, that was really great, you know. But remember, when that red light goes on, you're playing to millions of people. And I went, oh, thanks about that. So anyway, nothing was said. We go on, the, or the orchestra play and the, the concert's going along. Next, my time to stand, my turn to stand up. I stand up. The announcer sort of says who I was and what I was playing. And I looked up and what did I see? The word live. And what did I remember in my head? You know, don't forget you're playing to millions of people. I had a little wee, Claire. <laughs> I started shaking and had a little wee. <laughs> I was no. that nervous. I was. And I've never... Well, people that were right there know about that and some of my closest friends, but now it's going up in the podcast, yes. That, I am. That's to millions, John Paul. I actually wet myself with fear. And that was all, that was one sentence, mischievous sentence, again from a trombone player. <laughs> oh dear, dear. Now, what else can I remember? One that's not, not 
I've got some stories that aren't so humorous, but it all ends all ends up well. Okay. Um, I was playing in the National Food Association uh, convention, one of these big conventions that which the America, America has every year. This was in Dallas. There's always about six thousand flute players, and they have one these big convention hotels with zillions of rooms and conference halls and and exhibition halls. So um, I was doing. I had a, a couple of concertos on the the Saturday evening, their sort of headline concert, and the whole family came. So Rolf, Joe, and Eleanor. Joe's nine, Eleanor's five. And um, morning after the, the concert, we were in the big exhibition hall where there's, there's hundreds of, of, of stands of people selling everything to do with flutes, hundreds and hundreds of people, it's buzzing. And lots of people chatting me about the, the concert the, the previous night. So Eleanor was getting a bit bored and, and she was, I said, look, we're, we're almost done. I'm just going to go around the corner with one more person. So she suddenly went around the corner. And, you know, I literally sort of finished talking to the person and, and went around the corner and she wasn't there. Oops. So she disappeared. Um, so these, as you know, these exhibition halls, they're absolutely huge. So I said hundreds of souls, hundreds of people packed. We were running around, but we couldn't, couldn't find her. Um, I knew there were security guards at the door to stop people not in the convention getting in. Um, and they hadn't seen her. So now, really feeling sick. We had announcements on the tannoy, asking if they'd seen this you know, five-year-old blonde girl, nightmare scenario. And we went then out of the hall and, and searched. So this is like sort of up to, it was about 20, 25 minutes of, of just complete, a complete panic. Um, and then suddenly we saw her walking towards us with Johnny Mile and Just <laughs> Flute. And what had happened is that she thought, I said we were just about to go. And she thought, I know, I'm going to run ahead of them and get to the lift that she knew went up to our floor. But that was like miles away in this hotel. It was sort of, you know, it was a good, good five-minute walk away. You had to go through corridors and big, big concourses. So she'd run to this lift, and luckily, the lift came, and the first person to come out of the lift was Jonathan Mile. And of course, he recognised Eleanor straight away. I said, "Well, oh, what are you doing here?" She said, "I'm waiting for Mummy and Daddy." He said, "Well, let's go and see if we can find them." So, oh, all ended safely, but it was again a. A terrifying, a terrifying moment. That's a night. That's more of the nightmare category. That one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good Halloween one, isn't Whoa. it? We, we ought to have a, a sort of a soundtrack to this podcast, Jonathan uh, J, JP, of, of sort of scary music. <laughs> oh. Yeah, to lose to lose a child. Yes, especially yeah, at a convention. Yeah. I just thought it might be interesting if you'd ended up finding her on a, a certain booth. You know, it'd be interesting to know where she would have ended up if you had said, just wander around and end up on a booth and we'll find you. Because there's so many different booths, aren't there? Oh, there are so many, so many. Oh, now what about another one? Let me think. Um, I had a whole list somewhere. I don't know where my list is. I, I remember... Uh, Back when I was a student again, I loved competitions, so I did them all. Um, and the big ones often used to happen every four years. So the Geneva competition, the Munich, 
and there was a, a Johann Sebastian Bach international competition in Leipzig. Whether you ever came across that? No. Um, and uh, this was before sort of German unification. Um, and um, I had, but I, I applied to go to this competition. I had actually two incidents during this trip. The first was just before I left, I had a, a lovely pussycat called George. And George had gone missing. So I was desperately upset, but I had to fly off to Germany. But on the day I left, she actually came home. She'd been missing for four days. Um, but I didn't know about it. But my dad thought it was a really good idea to ring my hotel in Leipzig to get to leave, get a message to me. Because remember, no mobiles in the, those days. But, you know, I never got the message. Um, but every time I left the hotel, I was being followed by sort of two dodgy men in raincoats. And my East German friends were telling me that we're being followed. He's, they said, it's not unusual, we often get followed. But it turns out that the message my dad left was, tell Claire her cat has come home. <laughs> and they obviously thought, <laughs> other motive. Yeah. Because I was certainly on, certainly on a watch list <laughs> of everywhere we, we went in Leipzig. Anyway, I, leading on from that, um, in these competitions, you never knew whether you were going to get chucked out in the first round mm -hmm. or whether you'd get through. Now, this competition went on for three weeks. So I managed to get through to, to the, the last, last section. I got to the semi-final. So I was there for three weeks. So I had to buy an open plane ticket. So once I knew how, where I'd got to, I booked my flight home on the same plane as a lot of the other contestants and most of the jury. So I got to the airport to come home, got to check in. And they told me my ticket wasn't in order. And they took me out of the, the queue and put me in a little room. And after some time, an official came in and said, you need to buy a new ticket in dollars because my ticket was wrong. And I explained, no, it's not wrong. It was actually a more expensive ticket because it was an open ticket because they didn't know when I was going to go home. But I had no money, but they kept me there. And as you can imagine, it was really scary because I wanted to get home. I'd been away from home for three weeks and I didn't have any money, didn't know how I was going to get another plane. And it got to the point where the flight was about to leave. And just then, this man came back in the room and said, here's your ticket, you can go now, but hurry. Ooh. So I, I ran through passport control. I ran through the customs. And just on the other side of customs was another man in uniform who said, are you Southworth? I said, Ooh. yes. He said, they're waiting for you. <laughs> what now? But it was the plane. And he, he led me out onto the tarmac, onto the plane. Everyone's waiting, waiting for it to take off. And they were, everyone's going, where were you? What happened? And, you know, it, it was, I was, I said, so panicked. And, you know, I spoke about, about at least I was in the plane and everyone sort of took pity on me and, a lot of people bought me drinks on the plane to help me overcome this horrible experience. I was quite sozzled. The plane was going via Amsterdam. I had a three-hour wait in Amsterdam. Oh, dear. I remember getting off the plane on Amsterdam. I could hardly walk. I had three hours of drinking black coffee before I could get back home again. But, uh, yeah. That is a nightmare. Do, do yeah. experience the Leipzig. I'm not going to go down the... Uh... 
having a few sherbets root because that that would lead me into trouble i'm afraid <laughs> oh, <laughs> blind me it's uh we could just keep going claire so many aren't there as soon as you start talking as soon as you sort of come up with something then yeah i remember going to berlin before the wall came down and it was strange going over checkpoint charlie and then going over the it other was. side and just seeing the difference in colors going from mm. multicolored and the graffiti led wall to very gray and very um sort of i wouldn't say it's soulless because i always found these german people to be actually very warm and when i've played over there they were well i've only played over there twice but they were very warm and very enthusiastic and very generous indeed very very generous yeah so but to be taken away and put into a room whoa no yeah i know it was it was the most horrible experience because you hadn't got anyone to share it with you you're stuck there you can't speak the language and you don't know when you're going to get out no and they don't smile much they didn't smile much in those days did they they're very serious no they very officious yes yes it was it was uh it was a, a difficult time but you know in our job there's so much traveling and there's always something that 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 happens when i was when i was living in Manchester, i lived in Manchester for quite a long time and i remember i was playing in yorkshire so i had to go across the pennines the pennines is a sort of a range of hills and mountains and so i had a car so i i went and did the concert and it was so late after the concert, I didn't bother to change. So I had my long, my long, my long dress on and uh, jumped straight in my little tiny, I had a tiny mini car and um, set off driving across the Pennines. And on top of the Pennines, this was about 11.30, all the electrics went. So no lights. So I couldn't see. And there were lots of sort of drop-offs mm. on these hills and mountains where you know big big cliffs very dangerous I just had to park up and 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 stay there um so pitch black stranded in the middle of nowhere and occasionally a car would pass and go slowly but then you know keep going but then at about three o'clock in the morning a car drove very slowly past me and then I could see a torch being shone at me and again more panic you feel so vulnerable sitting there the middle of nowhere with me, my, my concert dress on, the car stopped and there was a knock on my window. And I still couldn't see anything because there was a torch. But luckily it was the police. And they said, what are you doing here? I'm not going to do a dodgy Yorkshire accent like oh. you. Because, you know, I, I'm a Lancashire girl myself. Oh, yeah. So I, I think you'll, you'll have a lot of problems. Um, anyway, it... He said, you can't stay here, it's too dangerous. And I said, tell me about it. I've been terrified for three hours, three hours. So he guided me down the mountain, uh, me following him, and put me in the station car park until it was light, and then I could drive home. Now, that is the perfect horror story to finish the podcast, I would imagine, Claire, because to be stuck on the top of a big hill, mountain, on the edge in a, on a drive with no lights and... No mobile phone, because they probably weren't nope. around in those days, and just That's waiting for, to, for, for someone to come and rescue. Ah, no. Ah. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, I think we've got quite a good collection of stories there. Ah, we just keep going. And that's without the really naughty ones that, that, uh, <laughs> that, I, that are in the back of my subconscious mind that I bury and do not sort of... Uh, I, I do not, they, do, they don't come out unless 
I've had a few sherbets at a dinner party or somewhere. Anyway, what's the, what's the weather like down with you today? Oh, it's, it's I'm looking out the window now. It's beautifully sunny, windy, but very sunny. Yeah, I'm looking out now. There's no wind, but it's very... This is weird because we're only about 30 miles away from each other and it's very dark. Yeah. It's very dark. There's no sun and no wind, so almost counter what you've got. But it's yeah. always nice. You're by the sea. Yes, it's lovely. It is lovely. <laughs> Can you hear the seagulls? No. 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 Not loud. They're going. They're going. Yeah. <laughs> so well, it's, it's great to catch up with you again, Claire. Yes. Good to hear your horror stories. Well, yeah, they say they're, they're not as bad as yours. The, the being stuck on the top of a mountain, that just, nah, that would be, that's <laughs> dreadful for me. Most of my horror stories have been down to my own stupidity. So I will hold my hand up to that. Right. Well, as, as you know, this was, really to celebrate Halloween in a few days' time. and But we're happy, as our listeners know, to talk about anything, any any topic, any flute-related topic. So if any any listeners would like us to cover anything particular, do write in. What's our email? Flutepodcasts at gmail.com. And feel free. Claire's very approachable. I'm not. I'm the nasty one. Rare. No, no, feel free to uh, email in or contact us on our social media. Claire Flute on Instagram and Twitter and at Flute on Twitter, which is me, or at TJ Flutes on Instagram, which is me also. And we also have a Facebook page. Oh, we do, yeah. Talking Flutes. Uh, How remiss of me. Talking Flutes on Facebook, where... Each week, the podcast that goes up also gets shared on that Facebook page. So, you know, people can comment on that page and say what they'd like us to talk about. Absolutely fine. Yeah. And if anybody would like to be a guest on Talking Flutes podcasts or even Talking Flutes Extra, then again, get in touch. And we've had a, we had a nice little array of suggestions. And these people are coming up in the coming weeks. So put forward your artists that you would like to hear doesn't necessarily have to be in the music field as you would have noticed from uh one i did a few weeks ago that was actually a personal trainer hollywood personal trainer who was a flute player so yeah chuck chuck ideas forward and it doesn't matter who they are we will go after them so well that's it from us then thank you very much for listening thanks john paul for your stories and uh we'll chat again another time Yes, take care and take care, everybody, and have a really, really horrifying Halloween. Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.